Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. The FT. On the show this week. As Europe looks to China and other BRIC nations to buy up its debt, we ask, is the global economy at a tipping point? Well, is saying that Europe needs to get its own house in order before China will even continue to make the kinds of token purchases made of Portuguese and Greek and, and Spanish bonds. But what his words were reflecting was this idea you hear repeated all the time in China that Europeans are decadent and lazy and that they've opulent social welfare systems, which China doesn't have, that they've run themselves into the ground. Back in the Eurozone, rumors have been flying again about the possibility of a Greek default. We've also seen Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel under pressure. On one level, we're just reliving the last momentary panic that we had three months ago, the last time that the European Union and the International Monetary Fund were negotiating with Greece. But this time, it's worse because the backdrop is worse, because we are now suffering an overall crisis of confidence in the Eurozone. And Palestinian leaders are preparing to present their case to the UN for statehood. There are two tracks here. One track will be the General Assembly. The other track is the Security Council. At the General Assembly, what the Palestinians can expect and what everybody's expecting is a resolution that would give the Palestinians the status of a non-member state, which is similar to the Vatican. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Sean Donnan. We start this week with a look at the role developing nations could play in rescuing the developed world from the economic slowdown and these burgeoning debt crises that we're all watching unfold. Joining me to discuss the possibilities are Joe Leahy in Sao Paulo, Jamila Andolini in Beijing, and Guy Dinmore in Rome. Guy reported earlier this week that Italian officials had gone to the Chinese, slightly with cap in hand, asking the Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund and other Chinese institutions to buy up Italian bonds bonds, sovereign bonds, and assets. Guy, why don't you just go ahead and tell me what exactly the Italians were up to? Talks kicked off, I think, in July when the Italian foreign minister went to Beijing. This was followed again by a visit to Beijing in August by Vittorio Grilli, who's head of the Italian Treasury. Then there was a delegation of the Chinese Investment Corporation, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, that came to Rome last week, primarily to look at what assets might be up for grabs in this Italian fire sale that the government will be forced to to put on show in order to combat its debt crisis. But the Italians, while keen also to privatize some assets and get foreign investment, are rather more enthusiastic about the idea that China might also buy some Italian bonds. And Italy's hope here is that at a time when they're having difficulty placing the sovereign bonds in the market or when they're being forced to pay high interest rates on those bonds, that a Chinese interest might bring down the cost of, of that debt. Is that right? But you also mentioned the assets. What is it exactly that they're selling? Well, so far, they haven't really shown their hand. There are lots of smaller assets of masses of state property scattered around the country. There are local utilities, but the, the big prizes on offer for what the Chinese are interested in would be infrastructure projects, telecommunications, and possibly holdings in the big energy companies, NE and NL, which are regarded very much as strategic companies by the Italians. 
Now, also on the line is Jamil Anderlini, our Beijing bureau chief, and he's watching all this from the China end of things. Jamil, how likely is it that the Chinese will step in? Very unlikely that they're going to make massive bond purchases. I think that it's very likely, if they're allowed, that they'll make direct purchases of the various state assets that might be for sale. China Investment Corporation, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, isn't really supposed to buy bonds. It was set up to manage a portion of the country's foreign exchange reserves, but to earn higher returns and make more risky investments than most of the reserves are invested in. And most of the reserves are invested in supposedly ultra-safe US dollar bonds, German funds, some yen, and a little bit of gold and things like that. So if the Italians are hoping that China Investment Corp itself is going to buy the bonds, then it's probably talking to the wrong people. But I think the wider story is that they're trying to talk through China Investment Corp to Beijing and the leaders of China and say, hey, this is a great idea. Why don't you bail us out? It would be politically disastrous in China for China to come and bail any European country out. China is still a very poor country when you get the average income. Jamil, now we heard from Wen Jiabao this week on this subject. What was he saying? was basically saying that Europe needs to get its own house in order before China will even continue to make the kinds of token purchases made of Portuguese and Greek and and Spanish bonds. But what his words were reflecting was this idea you hear repeated all the time in China that Europeans are decadent and lazy and that they've opulent social welfare systems, which China doesn't have, that they've run themselves into the ground. What Wen Jiabao's message really was, was unless China gets some serious political concessions from Europe, it's very unlikely that they'll even continue to, to make token purchases. What kind of political concessions are we talking about? When Chinese officials go to Europe, they have two main requests. The number one request is they want Europe to lift the ban on what they euphemistically refer to as high-tech exports, which means military weapons. Um, embargo, which Europe imposed after the Tiananmen massacre in 1989 and still hasn't lifted. The number two request is that EU recognize China as a full market economy, which would make it much easier for Chinese companies who get, keep getting hit with trade disputes. Now, this is one of the things we're, we're all going to be talking about in the weeks to come as we go into the IMF and World Bank fall meetings. And Guido Mantega, the Brazilian finance minister, has brought up the idea of having uh, the BRIC countries discuss this or caucus uh, on the sidelines of these meetings and come up with some kind of solution, some kind of coordinated potentially rescue plan for the developed world. Joe Leahy, our Sao Paulo bureau chief, is on the line now. Joe, just walk me through what Guido Mantega was proposing. What he said is that next week on Thursday, he's going to propose to the other BRICS nations that they come up with some sort of collective plan to try and um, address the euro issue. He didn't say what it was, but uh, local reports sort of quoting government officials have said that it could be something along the lines of buying uh, German debt. Um, so for Guido Antiga, this is a chance for him to try and take a leadership role. Just how we see the developing world step in in the weeks to come is clearly something we need to watch very carefully. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you, Jamil in Beijing and Guy Dinmore in Rome, who prompted this conversation with this fantastic story earlier this week.
And that brings us to the Eurozone. We've seen more turmoil in the markets uh, this week related to fears that we may see a Greek default, that this may all get out of hand and that the Eurozone may be on the way to a breakup. Uh, we've also seen Germany come under fire this week as the government has been accused of taking some mixed uh, messages to the public realm over a possible Greek default. Joining me in the studio is Ben Hall, the deputy world news editor of DFT, and on the line from Berlin is Gerd Wiesmann, who is our Berlin correspondent. Ben, why don't I start with you? Why don't you get us up to speed and just tell us where we stand on Greece? Well, it's been another torrid week on the markets, possibly the worst week so far in this whole long-running Eurozone crisis because the future stability of the Eurozone, the future existence of the Eurozone has been brought into question in a way that it just hasn't been done before. On one level, we're just reliving the last momentary panic that we had three months ago, the last time that the European Union and the International Monetary Fund were negotiating with Greece. But this time, it's worse because the backdrop is worse, because we're now suffering an overall crisis of confidence in the Eurozone, as demonstrated by the panicky market reaction to French bank solvency and liquidity this week. And we saw Moody's downgrade the ratings on a number of French banks this week, which is what you're referring to there. Walk us through a little bit where we are in terms of the choreography, in terms of the next tranche of the, of the Greek default. When does that get paid? The so-called troika of IMF, EU and European Central Bank officials are, if you like, negotiating with Greece to make sure that Greece is putting in place the necessary measures to plug its budget deficit and pursue its economic reforms. Once they are satisfied that the Greeks are going to do what they say, then we should get sign-off by the IMF and the EU. This is probably going to come at some stage next week, maybe in the margins of the, uh, the World Bank and IMF meetings in Washington. That will buy us some time for three months. Then Eurozone governments need to put in place the bailout measures, the enhanced bailout measures or rescue measures they agreed on July the 21st. That will take us through to the end of the year. Then we will be seeing another long negotiation about the next tranche of aid for Greece. And then I think we'll be in a completely different ballgame. Then I think we will be seeing a whole debate about whether or not Greece should be pushed into so-called controlled or orderly insolvency. Now, none of this gets to the question of an imminent default. And one of the great questions of this week has been, or one of the great subjects raised, has been the idea that Greece may be about to default on its debts. And part of what has fed that debate have been some comments from Philip Rösler, uh, who is the head of the Free Democrats, uh, the junior coalition party in Germany. And he, this week, uttered the phrase that we should no longer be talking about the possibility of a Greek default as a taboo. Garrett, just tell me a little bit more about that. Who is Philip Roessler and what was he playing at? He is, as you mentioned, the chairman of the Free Democrats. He's also Germany's economy minister. He's a fairly young politician and also fairly inexperienced, especially in that role. And I think that is part of the problem. I think he was an expression, if you like, a logical consequence of what would happen if the Greeks failed to qualify for the next tranche, which is something which intellectually is pure and reasonable, but given the nervousness of markets is something that he shouldn't really have said. And that prompted an intervention from Angela Merkel, the chancellor. Now, how did she step in? Well, she stepped in and said there were certain things that one shouldn't talk about, which, of course, then led to reaction from Mr. Roessler and his allies in the Free Democratic Party, who said, well, you know, we are allowed to say these things. I think a lot of this was actually just face-saving by the Free Democrats. They couldn't, of course, say, well, yes, you know, 
Ms. Merkel, you're right. He made a mistake. He shouldn't have done it. He's only been in office for a few months. We're really sorry. So we're seeing, in a way, a phony war about this breach of the taboo where the FDP is trying to save face. Now, all of this is taking place in the domestic political context in Germany. Can you just explain to us exactly what that context is, Garrett, and what this all means for Angela Merkel and her political position? I think she is under pressure. She has people in her own party who are unhappy about a new round of money for Greece. She has people in the Free Democrats who are equally, if not more, unhappy. And then there's also the Christian Union's Bavarian sister party, the Christian Social Union, that has some, let's call them, skeptics. On top of that, we have new instruments and rules for the Eurozone Rescue Fund, the EFSF, which is making people unhappy. So it's all quite a heady mix. And it means that She has to be very, very careful in terms of containing the atmospherics and making sure that people are happy, especially leading up to the all-important vote on the new instruments for the Rescue Fund on the 29th of September. Now, that domestic political context is replicated across the Eurozone. We've got 27 members of the European Union, 17 members of the Eurozone. And one of the great themes of the last 18 months or so as we've been following this Eurozone crisis has been the issue of communication from the European leadership and the domestic pressure that they face at home. Is there any sign that that's going to change in the months to come, Ben, or should we be prepared for more mixed messages from the European leaders? I think we're going to get a lot more mixed messages for the European leaders as they debate whether or not to put in place these enhanced bailout measures and a new rescue package for Greece. There's bound to be some dissonance which will destabilise the markets. It's worth remembering this week, a week characterised by mixed messages from Berlin and indecision from other governments and timid budget austerity in Italy, that once again it's the European Central Bank that seems to have come to the rescue of the markets, announcing on Thursday that it's entering into a special dollar liquidity facility with various other central banks banks around the world, bringing a very, very sharp rally in markets, equity markets and the euro. The question is, will it be enough? How long will it last? Thank you very much, Ben and Gerd Wiesmann in Berlin. Thank you. And to our final topic for today, a delegation of Palestinian leaders is preparing to fight the case for nationhood or state recognition at the United Nations next week. Could victory finally be within reach? And what will it mean if a resolution is passed? Joining me in the studio is the FT's Middle East editor, Rula Halaf. Rula, why don't you start off by telling us what you think this delegation can realistically expect out of the United Nations General Assembly next week? I think there are two tracks here. One track will be the General Assembly. The other track is the Security Council. At the General Assembly, what the Palestinians can expect and what everybody's expecting is a resolution that would give the Palestinians the status of a non-member state, which is similar to the Vatican. And that would allow them to join some of the UN institutions. We're referring to as the Vatican option. Absolutely. The big question is whether the Palestinians will be looking for more. They certainly, in their public statements, they are still saying that they are looking for full membership as a full state. And that would mean going to the Security Council. The problem is that at the Security Council, the U.S. would veto a resolution. So there are a lot of negotiations that are still taking place, and that will take place, I think, until the very last moment between the Palestinians, the Europeans, the Americans, and various Arab countries are also involved in in these discussions. And we're expecting a vote somewhere around Thursday of next week. Is that right? Well, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority president, is speaking at the General Assembly on Friday. So the expectation is that we should know by then what he's about to say. 
What does this mean on the ground for ordinary Palestinians? Well, that's a very interesting question because none of this is going to change. Whether it, it passes, it doesn't pass. And the Palestinians will certainly get a UN General Assembly vote. They have enough support. None of this will change the reality of Palestinian life. And people recognize this. That's why they are a bit detached. Popular opinion is a bit detached from this process. This is a very much of a diplomatic approach that is very important for the leadership, for the legitimacy of Mahmoud Abbas and for his legacy. And Hopefully, as the Palestinians see it, it can break the stalemate in the negotiations because there hasn't been any progress in negotiations or indeed any negotiations and bring future benefits to to the Palestinian territories. Build on that point that you're making a little bit about breaking a stalemate in the negotiations. I mean, in practical terms, what does this mean for the peace process? A lot of critics of the Palestinians are saying that this will undermine the peace process, but there are no negotiations anyway. So this could create a new dynamic. And it also possibly makes countries other than the U.S. more engaged in the process because the U.S. attempt to restart negotiations has not worked in the past few years. Why are we going to see a U.S. veto, do you think, if this goes to the Security Council? Israel is very opposed to this, and the U.S. is supporting the Israeli position, and the U.S. believes that this is a unilateral action on the part of the Palestinians that is not going to advance the process of negotiations. Looks like we've got an interesting week ahead. Rula, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Joe Leahy in Sao Paulo, Jamil Anderlini in Beijing, Guy Dinmore in Rome, Garrett Wiesmann in Berlin, Rula Khalaf and Ben Hall in the studio here in London. I'm Sean Donnan. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.